Welcome back to the podcast, talking about Hail and Farewell, Chapter 4, Second Reading. Swim says the mum officially says, our network event continues interminably on. Apparently George is encouraging his seat neighbour to bring the tea. Tea is American Southern slang for gossiping about a situation, story, juicy information about the other attendees. The snark level is high between the two of them as the gossip continues. George remarks that Ireland is spoken of as a humane entity rather than a geographical area. Which leads to this line, Ireland's brain just now it was the loins of London. George does not does know how to turn a phrase. For example, his term Gill's speech a gentle rigmarole. Rigmarole is slang meaning something that is long, complicated and tedious. Events thus far. eighteen ninety four, Edward Martin, George's cousin, talks with George about the Celtic revival which results in the overture soliloquy to Eve. Eve opens in eighteen ninety nine, when Edward and Yeats visit George with two players in hand and ask him for help. George has extensive theatre experience and essentially he gets roped into helping them put on the plays in London. <coughs> Edward and Yeats's end game was to establish an Irish literary theatre. George ends up moving to Dublin to be part of their effort. Note it is not discussed in this book, but George was very anti-Boer War because of England's atrocities, whereas the Irish Home Rule adherents were very much on the side of the Boers. He was very amenable to getting the hell out of Dodge, to leave somewhere immediately, to scram. So it's currently 1901, and George is in the midst of meeting the movers and shakers involved in the political and literary Celtic Renaissance scene. Movers and shakers are people who make things happen. People who are influential or powerful, people who are movers and shakers, are also always busy in their community or field or endeavour. Get the Hell Out of Dodge is a reference to Dodge City, Kansas. <coughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for the explanation um, of all those things. Moore wrote, Who is O'Grady? I'm thinking who are any of these people he's mentioning inside baseball indeed. The only thing that captured my attention somewhat was the part at the end, about the politics of the Irish at the time, and the old adage at the end, the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small. Holds true today for the political opinions and political machinery of any nation. Yeah, cool. Alright, well thank you guys for that. All of that. Let's continue reading. They all felt instinctively now that the time for the reconstruction of Ireland had begun. They stood among the wreckage of old society and felt that out of the ruins they were called upon to build a new island. No matter what their different opinions on various questions might be, they all felt within their throb of enthusiasm for their new life, their own country, and a determination that, irrespective of different ways, views, they would give their country an intellectual and political future worthy of all the sufferings that every class and creed of the country has gone through in the past. You're disappointed, my young friend, said. But if you stay here much longer, you'll get used to hearing people talk about working for Ireland, helping Ireland, selling boots for Ireland and bullocks too. You'll find if you read the papers that Gill's speech will be very much liked, much more than Yeats's. The comment will be, we want more of that kind of thing in Ireland. My young friend's cynicism now began to get upon my nerves. And turning upon him rudely, I said, Then you don't believe in the language movement? His reply not being satisfactory, and his accent not convincing of its Celtic origin, I grew suddenly hostile and resolved not to speak to him again during dinner. And, 
to show how entirely I disapproved of his attitude towards Ireland, I affected a deep interest in the rest of Gill's speech, which, needless to say, was all about working for Ireland. Amid the applause which followed, I heard a voice at the end of the table saying, We want more of that in Ireland. My neighbour laughed, but his laughter only irritated me still more against him, and my eyes went to Yeats, who sat, his head drooping on his shirt front like a crane, uncertain whether he should fold himself up for the night, and I wondered what was the beautiful eloquence that was germinating in his mind. He would speak to us about the gods, of course, and about time and fate, and the gods being at war, and the moment seemed so long that I grew irritated with Gil for not calling upon him at once for a speech. At length this happened, and Yeats rose, and a beautiful commanding figure he seemed at the end of the table, pale and in profile, with long nervous hands and a voice resonant and clear as a silver trumpet. He drew himself up and spoke against Trinity College, saying that it had always taught the ideas of the stranger and the songs of the stranger and the literature of the stranger, and that was why Ireland had never listened to Trinity College and been a sterile influence. The influences that had moved Ireland deeply were the old influences that had come down from the generation to generation, handed on by the storytellers and collected in the evenings around the fire, creating for learned and unlearned a communion of heroes. But my memory fails me. I am disfiguring and blotting the beautiful thoughts that I heard that night clothed in lovely language. He spoke of cherubim and seraphim and the hierarchies and the clouds of angels that the church had set against the ancient culture. And then he told us that gods had been brought vainly from Rome and Greece and Judea in the imaginations of the people. Only the heroes had survived, and from the places where they had walked, their shadows fell often across the doorways, and then there was something wonderfully beautiful about the blue ragged mountains and the mystery that lay behind them, the ragged mountains flowing southward. But that speech has gone forever. I have searched the newspapers, but the journalist's report is feebler even than my partial memory. It seemed to me that while Yeats spoke, I was lifted up and floated in midair, but I will no longer attempt the impossible. Suffice it to say that I remember Yeats sinking back like an ancient oracle, exhausted by prophesying. A shabby old and woolly-headed man seated at the head of the second table rose up and said he could not accept Yeats's defence of the ancient beliefs. Ireland had not begun to be Ireland until Patrick arrived, and he went on till everybody was wearied. Then it was my turn to read the lines I had dictated to the typist. After some words, hastily improvised and stuttering apology for daring to speak in the land of the oratory, perhaps I said something in the misfortune of having to speak in the Demesis, alluding, of course, to Yeats. I just explained the reasoning for my return to Ireland, how in my youth I had gone to France because I was there, and how when Art had died in France I had returned to England, and now that Art was dead in England I was looking out on which watchtower to find which way Art was winging westward, probably for all the countries of Europe had been visited by Art, and Art never visits a country twice. It was improbable that Art might rest a while in this lovely Northern Ireland, so my native country had again attracted me, and when I had said that I had come like Bran to see how they were getting on at home, I spoke of Yeats's poetry, saying that there had been since the ancient Bards, poets of merit, component poets, poets whom I did not propose they should either forget or think less of, but Ireland, so it seemed to me, had no poet who compared for a moment with the great poet of whom I was my honour to speak that night. 
It was because I believed that in the author of The Countess Kathleen in Ireland had recovered her ancient voice that I had undertaken the journey from London and contended to what I had hitherto hitherto considered the most disagreeable task that could befall me a public speech. I told them I would not have put myself to, uh, to the inconvenience of a public speech or anything in the world except a great poet, that is to say, of a man of exceptional genius. He was born at a moment of great national energy. This was the advantage of Shakespeare and Victor Hugo as well as Yeats. The works of Yeats were not yet and probably never would be as voluminous as those of either the French or the English poet, but I could not admit that they were less perfect. I pointed out that the art of writing a blank verse play was so difficult that none except Shakespeare and Yeats had succeeded in this form. The assertion, I said, seems extravagant, but think a moment and you will see that it is nearer to the truth than you suppose. We must not be able, afraid of praising Mr. Yeats's poetry too much, he, we must not hesitate to say that there are lyrics in the collected poems as beautiful as any in the world. We must, I said, be courageous in front of the Philistine and insist that the lyric entitled In This Free is unsurpassable. And I concluded by saying that 20 years hence this week in Ireland would be looked back upon in reverence. Then things would have fallen into the true prospective. The Saxon would have recovered for his bout of a black guardism and would have recognised with sorrow that while he was celebrating Mr. Kipling... Mary Corielli, Mrs. Humphrey Ward, and Mr. Pinero, the Celt, were celebrating in a poor wayside house the idealism of Mr. Yeats. My paper irritated a red-bearded man, sitting some way down the table, who wore no moustache, but his beard was like a horse's collar on his chin, and his face was like glass, and his voice was like the breaking of glass, and everybody wondered why he should speak so sourly about everything, including myself. Now that Mr. Moore thinks that Ireland has raised herself to this level. Mr. Moore has been kind enough to return to Ireland, like Bran. Who is he? I asked Yeats. Bran is one of the greatest of our legends. Yes, I know that, but the man who is speaking, a great lawyer, Yeats answered, who has never quite come into his inheritance. And the gritty voice went on proclaiming the genius of the Irish race. But Yeats, I said, he is talking nonsense. All races are the same. None much better or worse than another, merely blowing dust, the dust higher up in the road, and in, is no better than the dust lower down. Yeats said this would be an excellent point to make in my answer, and Gill said that I must get up, but I shook my head and sat listening to my speech, seeing it quite clearly, and the annihilation of my enemy in every stinging sentence, but without the power to rise up to speak it. Who would care for France, I whispered to Yeats, if it is only consisted of peasants, industrious or idle, the race is anonymous, the passes, and passes away if it does not produce great men, who do great deeds, and if there be no great contemporary writers to chronicle their valour, what nonsense that man is talking yet. Do get up and speak for me. Tell him that the fields are speechless and the rocks are dumb. In the last analysis, everything depends upon the poet. Tell him that, and that it is for Ireland to admire us, not for us to admire Ireland. Dear me, what nonsense Yeats do speak for me. Yeats tried to push me on to my feet. No, no, I said, I will not. My one claim to originality among Irishmen is that I have never made a speech. Gill waited for me and looked at him steadily. I said, no, and he answered, then I will call upon Hyde. Hyde, I said, that is the man I want to see. <sighs> he had begun sitting on my side of the table and I could catch glimpses only of his profile between the curses courses when he looked up at the waiter and asked for him for more champagne and sparkling wine and great yellow skulls sloping backwards and he seemed a little incongruous 
a shape strangely opposite, I said to Rolleston, who has very little back to his head. All Hyde's head seemed to at the back, like a walrus, and the drooping back black moustache seemed to bear out the likeness as nothing libels a man as much as his own profile. I resolved to reserve my opinion of his appearance until I had seen his full face. His volubility was as extreme as a peasant's come to ask for a reduction of rent. It was interrupted, however, by Edward calling on him to speak Irish and then to a torrent of dark, muddied stuff flowed from him, much like the porter which used to come up from the Karnakun to be drunk by the peasants on midsummer nights when a bonfire was lighted. It seemed to me a language suitable for the celebration of an antique Celtic rite, but too remote for modern use. It had never been spoken by ladies in silken gowns with fans in their hands, or by gentlemen going out to kill each other with engraved rapiers or pistols, Men had merely cudgelled each other, yelling strange oaths the while in Irish, and I remembered in it in the months of the old fellows dressed in breeches and worsted stockings, swallow-tail coats and tall hats, full of dirty blank bank notes, which they used to give my father. Since those days I had not heard Irish, and when Hyde began to speak it, an instinctive repulsion rose up in me, quelled with difficulty, for I was already a Gaelic leaguer. Hyde, too, perhaps on account of the language, perhaps it was his appearance, inspired a certain repulsion in me, which, however, I did not attempt to quell. He looked so like a native Irish speaker, or was it? And perhaps it was this. He looked like an imitation native Irish speaker, in other words, like a stage Irishman. Passing without comment over the speeches of the various professors of Trinity, I will tell exactly how I saw Hyde in the ante-room, from a quiet corner whence I could observe him accurately. He was talking to a group of friends. He is always so hilarious, so voluble. I am so delighted. I could hear him saying to some newcomer, so delighted to see you again. Well, this is really a pleasure. His three-quarter face did not satisfy me, but determined to be just, I refused to allow my opinion of him to creep into my mind until I had seen him in full face, and when he turned and I saw the full face, I was forced to admit that something of the real man appeared in it. I sat admiring the great sloping skull, eyebrows like blackthorn bushes over the edge of a cliff, and black hair hanging in lank locks, a black moustache streaking the yellow complexioned face, dropping away about the mouth and chin, without a doubt, an aboriginal, I said. He spoke with his head thrust over his chest, and as they do in Connemara, Yet what name more English than Hyde? It must have some to him from some English ancestor far back indeed, for it would require many generations of intermarriage with Celtic women to produce so Celtic an appearance. At this moment my reflections were interrupted by Hyde himself. A common friend brought him over to introduce him to me, and when I told him of my interest in the language movement, he was vociferously enthusiastic, and I said to myself, he has the one manner for everybody. Some of his writings were known to me, some translations he had made of the peasant songs of Connaught, and I admired them, though they seemed untidily written, the verse and the prose. I had read some of the propagandist literature, and this too was of a very untidy kind, so the conclusion was forced upon me that in no circumstance could Hyde have been a man of letters in English or Irish. The leader has absorbed the scholar, so perhaps the language movement is his one chance of doing something. Alright, that's enough. Thanks for listening.
to whatever that is. This is, this is might be the worst book I've ever read. See you tomorrow.